This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from RootMetric's second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. Sam, I'm proud Thank of you, man. You so you've, had a, you've had a really good year. Thanks, man. That's that's super nice to hear. You can keep that on the end of the podcast if you want. I, that's what I was trying <laughs> to do there. But I know you end it the same way every time, so I'm jumping over your ending. You can <laughs> okay. edit it back in somewhere else. You know what I want? <laughs> I want to talk to you. Hello and welcome to the Raptors Extra Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Samson Folk, and today I'm joined by one of the most popular writers around Toronto, and especially the Raptors, my dad, and a writer for The Athletic, Blake Murphy. Blake, how's it going, man? Yeah, man. How are you doing? That's a, that's a weird intro. Well, yeah, it's just uh, the way things shake out, I guess. We, yeah, we'll we'll, we'll uh, go ahead. Two father-son pods for me in, uh, in one series. It's a lot. I did Wills earlier in the series after game one, I think. And now you. This is uh, it's a lot. It's, for, it's fitting, though, in the week that Fred Van Vliet turns everything around with the birth of his son. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of sy- there's symmetry there, for sure. That's actually that's a wonderful intro into the, my first question. So as far as reporters go... You seem to have a pretty great rapport with the players just by how they respond to you, how I guess everybody generally responds to you, fans, players. You have a good energy about you. And especially with the guys from the 905, we a lot of the people saw the Twitter um, engagement you got from Jordan Lloyd, things like that. On a personal No, we're not level, talking about Jordan Lloyd anymore. He's not on the team. <laughs> on a personal level. Having watched Fred with the like 905, Pascal with the 905, 
sticking by that team and also covering the Raptors. What is it like for you on a personal level to see Fred come through like he did in game five? I mean, there's not really that much personal attachment necessarily because like I didn't, you know, I didn't make those shots. I wasn't really helping uh, Fred Van Vliet become Fred Van Vliet or anything like that. Um, the thing I guess that comes up is one, it kind of rewards the work that I put in, in the G league covering those guys. It's kind of like, like, I think at the team level, it tells you like, yeah, investing in that stuff is really important and they can pay dividends at the NBA level. And then from a reporting perspective, it's like, yeah, these guys might matter and, and it's good to learn their game and their growth. And it's good to learn uh, a little bit about them so that, you know, come playoff time, if a guy's mirrored in a in a very long slump you're like nah i've seen this before he can uh he can steer out of it so you know i don't like you have to keep that line of objectivity a little bit where you know i could be i could be happy for the team because i'm around them and i could be happy for the team because it means i get to continue covering them and get this cool experience but um at the personal level there's not there's not really a ton of like oh my god i'm so happy for that guy at least not right now not in the moment because it's kind of like just down to business um but there's a little bit of like it's rewarding to have covered those guys kind of start to finish. So or like finish, being a start start to wherever we are now. Yeah. Like being around them and like engaging with them like day after day, that doesn't that doesn't strike a nerve with you for like you see this guy. If you've seen Fred at every practice doing his interviews, you see like maybe he's wearing his uh his slump on his sleeve and those kind of things. To see him break through, there there's nothing on that end. I mean, that's part of the challenge of the job, right, is to maintain that that kind of arm's length. Like like I said, I'm, I'm obviously happy for the guy and, or, or for all of the guys. Um, but, you know, you can't you have to kind of try to not be like have a rooting interest, really. I mean, you can a little bit, I guess, but you you have to make sure basically there has to be enough of a line where you can trust that your analysis is objective. And like, you know, if I cared too deeply would i point out how poorly he's playing and stuff like that those are the kind of concerns that i think come up um so yeah i mean i'm happy for him and like i talked to him a little bit a after the game and like after he mentioned that it, his son was born and stuff like that um but i'm not doing I, I don't know i'm not doing a great job of describing this but you do have to keep like kind of a, a kind of a little bit of a an emotional distance at least like while you're in the moment because i think otherwise i mean i don't know how other reporters do it i only know how i do it but I have to be able to trust that, like, I don't have blinders on or anything like that. Well, I mean, if we're going by Bill Simmons as the blueprint for modern-day journalism, aren't, aren't you supposed to be very, very happy? Yeah, I don't I don't think there's anything wrong with being happy and, like, enjoying the ride and being, you know, being excited that I'm one game away from getting to cover an NBA Finals for the first time. Um, but, you know, I also... I mean, just like I said, there's there has to be that level of objectivity. And I think, you know, a Bill Simmons type of personality, his job doesn't require that level of objectivity because he's more of a personality and a character. Um, and I don't I, I love Bill Simmons. And if it wasn't for Bill Simmons, I don't know if I would have tried writing. But like, I don't think people go to Bill Simmons for like objective analysis that they you know, I don't think they I think they go to him to be entertained, not to or those type of people to be entertained, not to get like, you know, the objective breakdowns or whatever, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, yeah, totally. I'm glad I asked you this question with just being as obtuse as I was, kind of like how the Drake questions were pointed at Boonholzer, because now I know <laughs> that you have no aspirations of being a Bill Simmons or a Stephen A. Smith, which does disappoint me. Dude, Stephen you know, A. Smith least... is the man. That guy works so hard. Other he, he, he like 
took a little time out. He's watching Mission Impossible in the media room the other day. But uh, that guy's grinding, man. Yeah, he's. Uh, I've loved to see the way that you know he was hated because people were so invested in first take. But then everybody stepped away again, and they they stopped looking at him as an analyst and more of an entertainer. And then he was welcomed with open arms from just yeah. about everybody. Because he's the best in the business at that. Yeah, he's and terrific. like I think people I think people forget sometimes too that like his background like he worked his way up from like the newspaper level like a city paper he and like that guy has like a million radio and TV shows that guy that guy grinds man and to his credit he also like. He kind of takes it on the chin when he's wrong. Like, I saw a clip before we came on here today of him basically being like, well, the Raptors made us all, myself included, look like idiots. Yeah, that's the thing is he's he's got a lot of, I guess, social currency now that he's he's allowed to be funnier and more have more humility. And it's just he's not attached to his predictions anymore because, like, Chris Broussard, a guy who's attached to his predictions, attached to the things he says, is a lot more defensive, but Stephen A. Smith has that social currency now where he can be like, ah, you know, it happens. Yeah, and I think that's important because, like, you're going to be wrong a lot. Like, Zach, if Zach Lowe can be wrong on occasion, everyone else is going to be wrong a lot of the time too, right? Has Zach Lowe ever been wrong? I'm pretty sure just his stamp of approval is what swung the series for the Raptors, him and Kevin Arnovitz, just that yeah. out there. Yeah, um, but I mean, I, I just mean that like everyone is going to get stuff wrong, right? So you oh. kind of running from the stuff you get wrong or digging in when it's very clear you're wrong, like the Skip Bayless, Kawhi Leonard approach. Uh, you know, I think I think once you can have a sense of humor about it and once you can uh, even like I am loath to give this guy credit for anything, but like the Paul Pierce edit where they shifted the all the all the predictions he had made about the Bucks and the Celtics and twisted it around to make him look smart. Like as long as you can have a sense of humor about it and realize that like you getting something wrong is not like an assault on your personality or like the end of your career. Like we all just get stuff wrong. And Stephen A's really good at that. Yeah. Terrific. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about outside of uh, your connection to players, objectivity, and Stephen A. Smith is you were a guy who was really high on Norm. I remember listening to the podcast you did, and Malcolm Brogdon as well, both before they were drafted. Two major X, X factors now in the series. And it's intriguing to look at this series and say that there's no lottery picks besides Pau Gasol on the Bucks, and Pau isn't even playing. What does that say about the league at large, that these two titans in the East are competing against each other in this way without a, lot, a lottery pick on either roster, Sands, yeah. Pau Gasol? I think it says a lot. And I think you, you even if you look at some other teams that were in the mix here, like the Portland Trailblazers had lottery picks, but they were also a team that everyone was yelling for them to blow it up once they failed in the playoffs a couple of times. And yeah, they got swept, but they made it to the conference finals and, and that's a big deal for them. Uh, the Raptors, everyone at, at certain points was like, oh, blow it up, blow it up. And then, you know, Milwaukee hasn't really got there, but they've also done this really savvy drafting and finding guys that, um, that were undervalued like Brooke Lopez and Malcolm Brogdon and built that way. So I think what it says is that tank while tanking is the most obvious path to landing superstars, which are the most obvious path to building a contender. It's not, you know, it's not completely a necessity. Even, even the Warriors, obviously the Warriors now like signed Kevin Durant and all of these guys became like all world guys. Um, but like Steph Curry was what? Seventh overall. Yep. Yeah. So like, 
I mean, you you can you have to be bad to get a Steph Curry or a, or a Clay Thompson, but Draymond Green was drafted outside of the lottery. Um, you can build teams properly if your player development is on point, if your ability to identify players is on point, if you make savvy trades. And, and the tough, the hardest thing about the Raptors road is that it's taken so much patience and so many tiny, tiny incremental moves to get to this point um, that maybe it's not repeatable like maybe maybe a team doesn't have the patience for that or you just have to nail so many little things like the siakam pick like van vliet and free agency like the norm pick um you know even the purtle pick so that he has the value to then be included in the Kawhi leonard deal and all those little things uh kind of add up but i do i do think it shows that you know if you're a team that is just we we see here all the time about like the the Hawks of the last era of the, I mean, really the last, the last two Hawks playoff eras, you know, this treadmill of mediocrity. Um, I think what this year has shown is that if you are a well-run organization and you get some bounces along the way, or you, or you have the patience and the aggression to kind of tweak as you go, um, you know, that treadmill still has some, some upward mobility to it. And I think that's, that's an important lesson for teams around the league who, you know, there are some of these second tier teams that are going to face very tough off seasons, either with key free agents or, you know, if you're the Denver Nuggets, you know, what do you do to take that next step? Or, or do you have the pieces to take that next step? And especially the teams who are maybe looking ahead to a post golden state dynasty in the Western conference, all these things are good examples. And again, you still have to trust your front office and you have to make all these moves correctly. But I think it's pretty clear that, you know, you look at the, the four teams in the final four, um, you don't have to necessarily blow everything up. It, it certainly helps to get the foundational talent to build with, but it's not a it's not an absolute necessity. Yeah, I think one of the the craziest turning points for the league is Steph Curry's ankle injury, and then the very cheap contract he signed afterwards. How that impacted Clay, how that impacted Iggy signing there, KD signing there, and just what the Warriors were able to do because they had so much extra cap space because. They had an MVP on like nine and a half million per year. Just little things like that. It's like, how do you predict something like that transforming your franchise? Or even Steph Curry coming in, becoming one of the most transformative players of the past however many years. Yeah. And on and, top and, of that, sorry. You, uh, yeah, on top of that, you, if you can, if we've learned anything from this year, if you can trade for Kawhi Leonard, never don't trade for Kawhi Leonard. If the Celtics ever have the opportunity again, just, <laughs> just do it. Yeah, and that's, I mean, you mentioned Steph's ankle and how that allowed them to sign him to, you know, what turned out to be a very below value deal. Um, you know, like I said, you you sometimes need these breaks. And obviously, Kawhi Leonard's injury in the fallout with San Antonio was not a, a good thing in general. But it put a top five player on the market for what, you know, everyone thought at the time and has turned out in retrospect to be a very good price. So, um, you know, obviously, it takes a ton of patience to keep yourself in those positions where you can strike, but you know, if you can hang around there and you can continue feeling like you're building and not going backward, um, sometimes those things come up. Yeah. So I guess let's move into more looking at the series here. What is the thing that surprised you most? There's a lot. There's Kyle Lowry is performing. It's probably his best series of all time, given the stakes, given his role how well he's doing. There's Fred Van Vliet's seven for nine game, Norman Powell becoming the big game hunter once again, things of that nature. What what stands out to you as the craziest progression in this series so far? Did you say things of that nature? Did we talk about Stephen A. Smith too long? 
yep, yep, yep. Okay, Blake. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm. I mean, I think the this this maybe doesn't hold after Game Five as much, but I thought Eric Bledsoe was going to be like a big factor in this series. Like when I teed up the series, I was like, okay, if Giannis and Kawhi play relatively even, if Middleton and Siakam play relatively even, you can kind of go down position by position, Lopez and Gasol even. Um, the point guard matchup to me, where Milwaukee can throw three bigger point guards out there and, and two of those who have historically given Lowry trouble, um, I thought that you know Lowry was going to have to play his ass off to, to win that part of the matchup to help the Raptors get over the hump. Um, part of my thinking with that was that Bledsoe would also be playing well. I didn't think Lowry would be playing him off the floor. Bledsoe shooting 29% in the series, 15% on threes. He basically looks shook to take those threes now where he's, you know, attacking almost the second he he makes the catch. He's not even looking for, for the three-point shot. Um, and I thought that that's, you know, Bledsoe's defense is still very strong. He deserved that all defense nod. Um, I think maybe people didn't watch enough of the Bucks this year to, to realize that. But he has probably been the the single most surprising individual player to me, um, just because like I mean they need him to be so much better than he's been. The Bucks do, and it just it just hasn't been there yet. And I think that's that's really helped Toronto. Uh, you know, the, their starters won two games, even though a couple of those players weren't playing particularly well. And then you see some of these runs that they're able to put together later in games. Um, you know, he's had a part in those as well. Yeah, I think the the most shocking thing for me is like in the regular season he held Kyle Lowry to 0 for 11 shooting when he was matched up on him, and suddenly Lowry's hitting his high water mark for the playoffs. He's performing very well, and Bledsoe on the other hand, when he's been out in transition or pseudo transition things kind of like that, of that nature, he <laughs> he's been good. But the half court, which has been the whole goal of the Raptors, is to to locate Giannis in transition to make the Bucks slow it way down. And in doing so, they completely they annihilated whatever type of offense Bledsoe was able to create. And it is it is very strange. That's why I thought, too, I thought Bledsoe would probably draw even with Kyle Lowry, at least on the surface of their matchup. Kyle Lowry's always doing those things that help swing games for the Raptors. But I'm really shocked to see that Bledsoe has been dominated so much. Were you surprised to see them put Siakam on Bledsoe and given that they did Siakam on wall last year, were you seeing this coming or did that surprise you? Because I thought that was a really great adjustment by Nurse. Yeah, I, I saw it coming a little bit. I figured they would want that just to maintain the switchability on Savianas pick and rolls where Siakam could could slide over in, a, in an emergency situation. Um, I didn't think it made much sense to put Siakam on uh, Nikola Mirotic when Mirotic was starting. And then, you know, Siakam saw the bulk of his his minutes early against Middleton. But I think the Raptors realized at some point that um, not only has Middleton been passive at times in the in this series, but Middleton and Giannis has been guilty of this a little bit too, uh, obviously to less of an extreme level. But Middleton is almost too like make the right play. Whereas if he gets a Kyle Lowry mismatch or the Raptors send a double team, he's going to make the right read. But there have been a couple of times over the last three games where the Bucks just need someone to get a bucket and the role players aren't doing that. And I think the Raptors kind of figured out that they could bet Lowry on Middleton uh, and Middleton maybe doesn't want to take the volume of shots uh, that should shift his way in that scenario. So I, I think part of it, too, is like the Raptors, you look at the matchup data, the Raptors have switch these matchups all over the place and the the idea of everyone except Gasol and Lopez just pick up whoever in transition like two guys go to Giannis 
Gasol, you get Lopez, and then everyone else just pick up a body, whoever's closest to you. Um, I think that's helped. And I think, you know, we talked a lot before the season about the Raptors' defensive versatility and their switchability and their the multi-position uh, defensive potential of a couple of these guys. And you're really seeing in a series like this where, yeah, they're switching. That's maybe not all of it, though. It's that in transition, if you need to slow a team like this down, everyone can kind of just grab anyone and then figure it out from there. Yeah, it's... It's surprising how well it worked out, the synergy of the matchups for the Raptors, given that, like you were saying, you go down the list and you say, well, the Bucks they look like they have advantages here, especially with the Lowry and Middleton matchup. Is Middleton is really good coming off of dribble handoffs and really good as a spot-up shooter, but he's not terrific out of the pick-and-roll, and that's where he might have been able to snake the pick-and-roll, keep Lowry in jail, but he's not so efficient in that play type. And as far as waiting for the ball on a post-up or going after DHOs, Lowry is a really sticky and strong defender, and it kind of mitigates what Middleton's been able to do while also maximizing Siakam's length on Bledsoe. And obviously, the Kawhi on Giannis matchup has been incredible. Is there anything on offense that you're particularly pleased about that the Raptors did in this series? Um, I, I just want to say before we pivot off of defense, you know, I know it sounds like we're very high on the Raptors because they're coming off of three wins uh, i do think maybe maybe the the thing that's been most surprising after the bledsoe thing to me is that the bucks really haven't changed much up offensively in the half court like four out of five games now they've scored at a below 50th percentile rate in the half court even though they were the league's third best half court team and they're really and some of that is like they're shooting 30.3 percent on threes what are you going to do uh, but some of it is also like they just keep doing the same things and just hoping it works out better. That's part of the nature of having a high variance offensive strategy and a high variance defensive strategy, I guess. But if Giannis isn't getting it's hilarious to say this because he's averaging 10 free throw attempts in the series. If Giannis isn't getting quite the whistle that he's used to, especially in game five when the Raptors are playing very, very physical, um, you know, that kind of sucks some of that away and they haven't been able to do enough other things. And like Miritich is no longer playable in the series. And because Bledsoe's not hitting threes, that's an issue. Um, I have been, I know that Budenholzer has a reputation as a guy who's a little slower to adjust. Um, I was surprised that the bulk of Milwaukee's adjustments in Game five came on the uh, the defensive end, not the offensive end. Um, in terms of Toronto's offense, I've been really impressed. I thought I thought the last three games and game five in particular, you know, we talked a couple times this year about how sometimes it looked like there was the Kawhi offense and then there was the Raptors offense and they kind of existed parallel to each other and weren't merging uh, quickly enough over the course of the regular season. I think you've seen now what that looks like when Kawhi can get 30 plus points and dish nine assists. And, you know, he can, you know, game four, he can ease off the throttle a little bit as a scorer. And the Raptors have uh, nearly 80% assist rate as a team. And they're, they're figuring this out game to game and not only figuring it out, but figuring it out against the league's best defense. So, um, you know, maybe there's some unsustainability there with with the three-point shooting uh, relative to what the Bucks normally give up, or, you know, e even just being able to sustain this level of playmaking without turnovers like they did in Game 5. But I've been, you know, blown away by how well the, the two kind of previously disparate parts of the offense have merged together here. Yeah, I guess the last thing I'll ask you before was we rambling, get to Twitter sorry. questions... No, no, not at all. It's uh, nothing better than a ramble from a person who's got lots of intelligent things to say. You can just wean from it what you like and build off of it and parrot it and take credit for it. And what else do people listen to podcasts for, if not for that? Uh, so we're going to transition to the Twitter questions now. 
if that's all right with you. But after yeah, you predict game six, what's the outcome there? Oof. Why you got to make me do that? So this is this has been my thing all. I mean, the the Magic series I I had pegged down pretty pretty well. Like the Raptors would have one bad performance and they'd win in five. The Philly series, I felt like I had a good idea of what the series was big picture. Like I picked the Raptors in six, but I was like, basically, okay, both of these teams are good. The Raptors are a little better. That's probably how it'll play out. This series, it was the opposite. I was like, uh, the Raptors and Bucks are really close. Um, I had picked the Raptors going into the playoffs to, to make the finals. And then I just thought Milwaukee looked so much sharper in the first two rounds that I went Bucks in seven. But it was the same kind of thing. Like the series will be close. But in each of those two series, game to game, I have had no idea what was coming. Like the fact that I know Nick Nurse has talked about it a lot, but that there were four blowouts in a very close seven game series that came down to the final buzzer beater is like it's so it was so hard to get a handle on that. And even in this series, you know, the the Bucks blew them out one game, which was like kind of expected. I didn't know if the Raptors had a blow Milwaukee out on their own court kind of game to them. Apparently apparently they did i guess it wasn't a, a blowout but the uh the the game in back in toronto was a blowout um and i didn't really think they they would maybe reach that gear so game to game i haven't really had an idea uh i picked a seven game series initially so i would tend to lean towards this going back to milwaukee um i think the big thing that's keeping me from just being like yeah this is a wrap because I thought Milwaukee looked a little mentally shaken during and after game five. And I think the fact that they don't really have answers for what to do on offense is probably troubling for them. I kind of feel like there's a big Giannis game left in this series. Like he had like one where he is just like, oh, yeah, this is a series of two superstars. And he's had really good games. He's averaging 23 points um, on, you know, fairly efficient and 14 rebounds, six assists. But I don't know. You know, I I think there's. I thought coming in there would be a Giannis moment in this series and a Giannis game, and it's kind of in my back, the back of my head that we maybe see that with their backs against the walls. Although the Bucks haven't had their backs against the walls ever, so I don't, I don't know if I should be expecting that or not. So I guess I would say it's going seven because I picked seven eventually, uh, initially, and it's been a close enough series. But I don't have a strong feeling either way. Do you? Uh, that makes you a villain, first of all. Secondly. I know, <laughs> but this is how these series go. Yeah, like I, it um, surprised me if the Bucks just came out and they were like, you know what, we're defeated. Like, like a very like Raptors in 2016. Once the Cavs were just like, no, those two wins were playing around. Stop. Or like that OKC um, San Antonio series from from a couple years back that Serge referenced the other day. It wouldn't surprise me, uh, but I have a lot of faith in Giannis to I don't know make some noise on his way out. Yeah, I think for me, I do think it wraps up in six only because most of the time game five means you win the series and the teams that didn't win game five but did win the series, that's like the heat against the Celtics and that's LeBron James. And at least when LeBron James had to resort to being walled off from the rim, he was a generational passer. And Giannis... His ability to dissect the Raptors' defense, he's not a bad passer at all, but it is just left a lot to be desired. And I know he hasn't had a good whistle, but how he's responded to that pressure has made me think that the Raptors just have to keep pushing, pushing, pushing. And outside of Giannis going for like 16 free throws, the Raptors falling off completely from downtown, and I mean like a 20% game, which is, that's in the cards, that can happen. 
but I think that the Raptors will take it in six. But I was I was the same as you. I before the playoffs I picked the Raptors for the finals, but then Brogdon came back early. He looked good and he's been awesome in this series. And actually his return to the Bucks made me choose the end up choosing the Bucks just because I thought he'd swing it against like Van Vliet and Lowry when they had him on him. But for me, I I originally predicted before this series Bucks and Six, but now it's Raptors and Six because I am flip floppy and lame. But I'm you the don't hero think of this the Bucks podcast. will win in You're Six? No, I, I I'm way past that now. I've transcended that that line of thinking. Uh, yeah, I hope you are right because I don't want to. Uh, yeah, I don't want to go back to Milwaukee. Not no no offense to the uh, the fine city of Milwaukee. I the just, cream uh, city. Yeah, I don't want to go back there. Oh, good. I'm, I want, uh, I want uh, to be covering an NBA final. I don't want to be covering a game seven. Okay, <laughs> well, let's cross our fingers for it then. Yeah. And I mean, we'll, there you uh, go. You wanted me to. You wanted me to have a rooting interest earlier. There you go. I don't want to. I, I would rather just know I'm getting to cover my first NBA Finals, and that all the fine listeners get to celebrate uh, a trip to the finals. On and you are now compromised. I'm compromised. Nobody. Yeah, now you're compromised. Your rooting it's for the, interest is for has the been listeners, It's not yeah. selfishly. I just I care so deeply about the listeners. I just want them to be happy and have the have nice things. Yeah, exactly. And you know, we're most often compromised by our family members. So from a son to a father, I'm glad I could do that for you. Man, so, I'm so uh, wishy-washy on game six. I, I, I feel like part of me is like maybe emotionally hedging. <laughs> it's like, I don't know, man. I, I also, I, I know this is not the, the best podcast appearance for me. I haven't slept yet. My brain is mush right now. Well, you know, it's... uh. Every you know you have a, a little bit of a cult of personality, especially with like the Raptors of public folks. So I'm pretty sure everyone's just happy to have you on, even if the, it is um, if you are want to ramble those types of things. So uh, the Twitter questions we'll get into it from Andre says two part question: Do you think Kawhi is even aware of all the free stuff being offered to him if he stays? And do you think the community pulling out all the stops makes us look a bit desperate? What do you think, Blake? Uh, I'll answer the second part first. I don't think it makes the fan base look desperate necessarily. Um, you know, this is a little hard to answer on a Raptors Republic podcast because Raptors Republic has been involved in that uh, <laughs> campaign. I don't think I think it's harmless. I don't think it's registered to Kawhi at all, nor would he he care really. Uh, but I think. You know, what I think it does is it's like there it kind of just builds the sense of community. And, you know, you have the Jurassic Park stuff. You have the reputation as one of the best crowds in basketball. You have these passionate people trying to put together, you know, anything like that to get them to stay. You have Kawhi murals. You have Kawhi. You should stay uh, billboards going up around the series, the, the city and stuff like that. I just think it all kind of feeds into, you know, this being a really good basketball environment right now so i don't think it hurts in any way i don't think Kawhi has any idea that it exists or you know it knows what any of the restaurants are necessarily um but i don't think it's i don't think it looks desperate i think it's just you know part of the fun and part of the the raptors trying to and the city of toronto trying to build itself as you know a good home for for a star of that level yeah it's a it's a beautiful sentiment justin john says do you expect raptors to empty the tank the way the Bucks are expected to. Giannis, Middleton, Brogdon going 42-plus minutes. Will Kawhi, Pascal, Lowry do the same? Not hard matching, just in general. Thanks. 
Yeah, I would I would think so. I would think that with the potential to have I mean, first of all, obviously you have a chance to punch your ticket to the NBA finals. Uh, but also the specter of having to go into Milwaukee to win a game seven where road teams only win, you know, what, twenty to thirty percent of the time or something like that. And then also the idea of if you pull that game out, you have four days of rest before the NBA Finals starts. So are you looking at, you know, if you're projecting at the tiniest of margins, are you looking at 40 minutes of Kawhi and having to go seven? Is that worse or better than, you know, 45 minutes of Kawhi, but you get it done in six? I think that that's all going to tilt toward get it done on Saturday. I don't, Siakam maybe less so just because he's had kind of an up and down series. So the, the other supporting pieces, it might be, more of a who's playing well that night kind of thing. But I think Leonard will be up into the 40s, and I think Lowry will be up into the 40s as well. The interesting thing for me will be Budenholzer has said all season and all series that they like Giannis around 36 or 38 so that he can be peak Giannis the whole time. And even in Game 5, in a close game, he only played 39. He came out on that key possession when he when he hurt his ankle a little bit. There, I'm very curious to see if Bud will push that into 42 44 territory i know everyone expects it but he's been fairly adamant that that's not coming so uh, i'm interested to see if they do the same because i think the raptors will be with Kawhi. it would yeah it would really be something if he only played you know Giannis like 36 38 and they lost in a close game i think that would be very frustrating for milwaukee fans because what what does the difference make for one game six going forward if if Giannis plays like a little bit more i'm not sure but also Giannis looks like he's in better shape than any other living human. So I feel like if I was the coach, which I am not, I know nothing compared to these people, but I'd probably, I'd empty the clip with Giannis, provided that that was an opportunity. 40 and dunking at midlife vertical says. I like that guy. He always has, he has good questions and good tweets in the mentions. He's what, he's been wonderful to me. He's so nice. Yeah. yeah so well, 40 who wouldn't and be wonderful thing. to you? You've had such a good season. Oh, Thanks. Wow. Well, it'll be really telling, though, is like, how do the people treat you if you have a down year or, or you have a, you know, you go into a bit of a five game post game reaction podcast slump? Well, then you'll uh, really one, the, I, I called Malcolm Brogdon Brogdon and one person was like, I will stop listening to the podcast if you make this mistake again. And I was like, OK, <laughs> it's Brogdon. Uh, I remember I remember one time someone got really mad at me for butchering uh, Michael Iabinye's Name the guy who was like a Pistons prospect for a bit. Because uh, that's a really hard name to pronounce. And I butchered it. And that guy was really mad. But he should have been because I hadn't looked up how to pronounce that guy's name. I'm usually pretty good. But I guess maybe I was just being, just going for Brogdon. I don't know why. A little bit more uh, punch on that one. If it makes but, you yeah. feel better, the TNT <laughs> broadcast last night when they were teeing up the All Elite Wrestling Double or Nothing pay-per-view event, streaming on Bleacher Report Live this Saturday, overlapping with Game 6, hilariously enough, uh, they pronounced Chris Jericho's name as if he was Jonas Jurebko's brother. Chris <laughs> Jurebko. It was, uh, so, you know, even the, the most professional among us are subject to mispronunciation at times. So don't feel yeah. bad, Samson. Yeah, it was actually funny. There was a comment today on Raptors Republic where a guy, because I used the term Schadenfreude, suggested that I was a wordsmith and that I be Eric Kareen's understudy. And I responded and said, unfortunately, the last time Eric and I met resulted in us becoming enemies. And he just responded with, sorry to hear that, <laughs> which was pretty funny. Anyway, yeah, 40 and dunking <laughs> says, 
Danny Green was a 41.4% three-point shooter for the Spurs in 100 playoff games and a 45% three-point shooter for the Raptors this season. Any theories on why he's struggling at 32.9% in these playoffs? Yeah, so I'm glad that he pointed out the uh, rate at which he hit threes with the Spurs in the playoffs because I've seen a lot of like when Green and Van Vliet were struggling, people were like, oh, they're not playoff performers. Like Van Vliet shot poorly last year, ignoring the fact that Van Vliet should not have been playing last year because he had one functional arm or the fact that Danny Green, you know, was setting three-point shooting records for the postseason uh, earlier in his career. So I don't... I think part of it with Danny Green, I mean, my answer with three-point shooting slumps is always going to be that there's an element of variance at play. Like, Danny Green has taken 82 three-point shots in the playoffs. We know that three-point shooting stabilizes up around, like, 753-point attempts. So these are, you know, even a 40% shooter might have a 33% stretch of 17 games. Like, it might just work out that way uh, unless you're Steph Curry. And even then, wasn't Steph Curry shooting like 25% on threes over almost an entire series? Yeah, uh, and so also, I think... Sorry, Clay Thompson ahead. had a horrible start to this year. He still ended up at like 40.9% after it all. Just yeah. shoot or shoot. Yeah, so those things happen. I think the other thing is, um, and you know, maybe this is retconning because I didn't point it out earlier in the year, but Danny Green will turn 32 uh, during... Uh, he'll turn 32 at the end of... Within a month, sorry stumbling over my words uh danny green will turn 32 soon we found out that in the summer he they discovered that he had been playing through groin tear he came out this year he appeared in 80 games he was 96 minutes off of his career high in total minutes played and has now played what another 500 minutes in the playoffs which is almost his playoff career high as well um so i think there's Probably, along with the variance, an element of wear and tear there. Um, he maybe shouldn't have been playing 28 minutes a game all year. And earlier in the year, that was a heavier load. Obviously, this is easier to say with hindsight because he looks maybe a little banged up now. Um, but those are my two best guesses. There's variance, and then he has had maybe the biggest workload of his career in total at age 31, almost 32. I think it would be very triumphant if the Raptors did make the finals and he came and took back his finals record. <laughs> Stealing it from that, Steph Curry would be... I think that would be wonderful. His finals record, by the way, he was 55 of 114 in 2012-2013 for the playoffs as a whole. He shot 48.2%. The next year when the Spurs won the championship, 48 for 101. He had a two-year stretch taking 215 playoff threes and hitting 48% of them. He's a heat pump. That he's, is he's an crazy. unbelievably good shooter. He had another playoffs where he shot 50% for the entire postseason, too, but it was only the Spurs were bounced in the second round. Yeah, I, I've prefaced almost every time I've talked about Danny Green with the, he used to have the record for most threes made in the finals, so it'll come around. It hasn't yet, but hope springs eternal. So yeah, that's... and I mean, he shot 45.5% this year. He's clearly got the stroke still. It just... Yeah, and he's the only Raptors player to ever compete in the three-point competition and then not be ass afterwards for the rest of the year shooting from downtown. Yes, he's the only player to ever avoid the natural plexiglass principle of you were hot enough in the first half to get invited to the three-point contest, so naturally you were going to regress downward. Yeah, exactly. So now we're going to transition into things that are more like 
what you'd receive in the fun part of one of your mailbags, which I have co-opted and stolen from you for Raptors Public, which is <laughs> you fine. Didn't, you didn't even change the format at all. Eh? Like, even the intro is almost the same. It's like, I, I read Raptors Republic, and I'm like, oh, they're still using my, my pregame format. Oh, they're still using my news and notes format. Oh, Samson left in answers <laughs> from my last mailbag. I'm kidding. It's... I thought it was a great format, and I was just like, hey, look, you know, being very transparent, I was like, I'm trying to make a career out of this thing. I'm yeah. just going to emulate Blake because he did. And then uh, the more agency I get, you know, hopefully I'll just start branching out in my own way. And then, yeah, I mean, it took me then, a couple seasons to figure out the formats that I liked for all those things, like the deep dive series previews and the mailbag and the pregame and postgame and stuff like that. It took me, it took me a couple of years to figure out how I wanted to do those. I, I haven't reached the part. My first couple, there are a lot of strange questions because, you know, I'm new to Raptors Public this year. But now it's just more like basketball. I have to get people asking me about my music taste, et cetera, going yeah, forward. It, it depends. Like, if I, I figure I'll do one if the Raptors make the finals because I've done one to preview each series. I can't imagine people will want to talk about much other than the finals for that one. Yeah, it would uh, be very shocking. So the first question I guess we'll get into <clears throat> from Chris Bridgen. The Rio Statics loved Roberto Alomar so much that they wrote the song Alomar and released it on their 1995 album, Introducing Happiness, a top 20 Canadian album of all time, by the by. Who was going to write the bouncy, ecstatic, definitive song about Kawhi Leonard? That's a great question. It is a great question, and the answer sucks because it's Drake. Ah. <laughs> yeah, no, like... I, I don't know. I'm trying to think now if so. I, I don't know if you know this, but my roommate's a musician and he's a huge Raptor fan and wears Raptors jerseys on stage to perform all the time. Um, if he were the songwriter for the band Pup, I would think that he would be the one to to shoehorn it in. But I don't think he's going to I don't think he's going to be able to do it. I don't think he's going to be able to beat Drake to the punch. I think Drake probably already has something lined up to like drop for the finals or something like that. Like there's no way he's been in town all this time going to all these games that he does like the way he controls social media and the streaming playlists and stuff like that. There's no way he doesn't have a pre-finals track ready just in case they make it. Yeah. He's he's most of the time he's got something in the books coming up. So yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Another one, a good one for Blake <clears throat> from Matt Schantz. And did you know it's Schantz, not chance? I think so. I think I had him on a podcast before and made that mistake. Yeah, it's a very high society. I really like it. Matt Schantz says, what are Blake's three most important beard care, tip, beard care tips? And apparently OG Ananobi has gotten a hold of Matt Schantz's Twitter account. Yeah, no, OG and I talked about it. He's trying to, OG just like weirdly, it's not that bad, but it's like not growing on his chin very much. He has like almost an inverse goatee going on. So yeah, weird. he looks chops. like Triple H in the early 2000s. <laughs> well, also, there's, it's more, you, there's no way you get that reference, but it's uh, um you have to keep more hair on the cheeks than under the jawline. Otherwise, you're just gonna make your face look chubby. And oh gee, he's erasing his jawline. He's got he's got to do better. So uh, the three things I would say: one is beard oil. It seems like a like hipster fat or whatever, but it's actually really important for the skin underneath your beard because like like I haven't shaved since I want to say May 2013, like all the way down. So yeah, it was May 2013, um, and I know that because I was at a wedding 
while the Raptors were, or 2014, sorry, uh, because it was in the Nets series, and I was at a wedding in South Carolina, and I was watching the game, like, like peeking at the game all through the wedding. Anyway, I tried to line up my beard and went too far, and it started to look like chin straps almost, so I had to shave, shave it off. So I guess number one would be don't do chin straps. Uh, if you take it down too far, just let it go and start over. Um, number two would be beard oil because your skin under there still needs treatment and just rubbing moisturizer into a beard is not very good. Uh, and then the third one, I mean, some people might say beard balm. I f- feel like that falls under the beard oil category. And really, that wouldn't matter until it gets a little bit longer. Um, but the thing would be, if you're growing it out, you should still be trimming it regularly or getting it trimmed because that'll keep it from getting too scraggly and it'll keep it growing in the shape you want it to grow instead of growing all over the place. Um, also wood combs if you're growing it out because those are better than plastic combs. Uh, for my advice, uh, in case anybody wants to know. My know advice Blake for Bucks. you would be don't. <laughs> anyway, when I, I only said to... that because people expected me to, to say something like that. I saw the, I saw the tweet thread. Adam? Is that what you saw Adam McQueen asking about the dunks? Yeah. I know you're going to make fun of me. I'm not going to broach that subject. Anyway, my advice, when I moved to Mexico, I actually had grown my beard out the biggest it had ever been. Now, I'm not Blake Murphy. Okay. Yeah, was so that a, not... number two, a number two on the buzzer? No. Okay, <laughs> listen. I'm going to tell the story. You can keep your slander over there. We're not, we're not hearing it. <laughs> and uh, I, I brought a beard trimmer as one does when they have a beard as great as mine or or Blake's. However, comma, I forgot the charger. I did not realize I forgot the charger, and I had already trimmed half my face and then realized that I couldn't charge it, and I had to shave everything away. And when I shave my beard away, I look like I'm 16, which is no good at all. As opposed to looking like you're 17. Yeah, the, the beard adds a year, you know, it's... Once uh, once the receding hairline grabs a hold of me and really takes it all the way back, it just won't matter. I'll just be a bald child. I, I don't really care to talk about receding hairlines right now. I just turned 33. It is not lost on me that my hair starts a little further back than it. Uh, I don't like I'm not going bald, but it's it's slowly. Cro- it, what's the opposite of encroaching? Uncroaching. We'll call it. We'll say it's uncroaching. Uh, slowly. I think the the best term is just what they use is receding. Honestly. No, um, uncroaching. Receding. Uncroaching. I feel like receding. People think it's too extreme. Like people say, "Oh, receding hairline." They like people in their minds. They recede it too far. They go all the way to like Costanza, and I'm I'm not <laughs> not even close to that. I have very thick hair, so it doesn't. You know, I can hide it. It's just, you know, it's. It's creeping back. Yeah, for me, it's the the Tyrion Lannister thing. It's like wear it like armor; nobody can use it against you. So, like <laughs> you met a leg, a leg yeah. is absolutely ruthless. Like I think he responded to one of my tweets with "fix your teeth." So I just sometimes I have to <laughs> just wear it on its sleeve, and you know that's what that's why the receding hairline comes up. You just gotta. When you're in my you, position, you step in front of it. Do you have bad teeth or something? You got an uh, Obi-Trice situation over there or what? Real name, no gimmicks. Yeah, uh, another uh, reference you won't get. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, yeah, so uh, Matt, if you wanted uh, beard advice, that's that's it. Um, Blake has to go right away, so I'm gonna we're going to do one more 
song thing as Blake is the the heir apparent to all the greatest um, music reviewers and kebab kebab donor kebab donor at Guy DeBort says best song off of Dedicated. Oh, that's a good question. Do you know mm-hmm. what that is? No. <laughs> it's Carly well, Rae Jepsen's may- new album. Oh, okay, yes. I actually listened to part of that yesterday, to be honest. So, I just didn't know. It was funny. On my So I flew back from Milwaukee this morning. I had a 5.30 flight from Milwaukee to Charlotte and then Charlotte to Toronto. On the second half from Charlotte to Toronto, I was like, again, I hadn't slept. And like my my recalibration was done, but I had Wi-Fi on because I was like, Wait, I was waiting for it to get edited and go up. So I was like, just kind of sitting there, like fighting the head nods and listening to Carly Rae Jepsen. And I was like, so this album, relative to her earlier albums, is a little like, I guess sexier is the term, but maybe hornier. It's just like the last one was like, <laughs> the last one was very much like synth poppy and about like meeting someone and being really excited about it and all those things. And this one is much more R and B and like far more sultry. And I was just like in my head, I was like, what is like the sexiest or dirtiest song on this album and then i look over and the guy beside me was reading like an e-version of the bible and i'm like man we are having very very different friday mornings and it was off-putting anyway the answer is want you in my room that that does sound horny that sounds very horny actually Uh, so party for one is probably like objectively the best track but it was like a single so much earlier than the album you know when bands do that sometimes and then it's on the album and it's like oh yeah it's it's like the drake special actually of like you release a song as a single and then like a year later it shows up on an album um so i yeah, kind of forget the rapper that. he did yeah. that with angels that was that was on there for it was out for a long time yeah um so anyway party for one is probably objectively the best one but um there is like like the two three four of the Carly Rae Jepsen dedicated batting order is like murderer's row level of two, three, four song quality. It's really well, good. That was, yeah, it's, it's just good pop music. That's, that's what that's it is, man. Way. Yeah. And Not there's nothing, to... I'm glad that people, I, I don't know about the listeners, but in general, the public discourse seems to have come back around on pop music where, Hey, it's the, the word pop was a stand in for popular and it's popular for a reason. Cause people like it and it's, you know, it's fine. Yeah, it can it can just be what it is. Just some fun music, good yeah. times, that type of thing. Yeah. Like like the Raptors this year. They're meant to be enjoyed. You don't have to worry about Kawhi coming or leaving or whatever it ends up being. Just enjoy the moment. I mean, I guess, but also live and die with every basket on Saturday. You, mostly because you, you don't. Mostly because you don't want a Monday. Yeah, well, I that's, don't. I fear for Raptors Twitter if there's a, another Game 7, man. That's a <laughs> lot. Be... Man. Multi- like, I know the Raptors went through multiple Game 7s before, like with Indiana and Miami. But like it was Indiana and Miami in the first and second round. And like with the inevitability of LeBron's going to crush you if you get through this. I don't know, man. Going Philly-Milwaukee back-to-back and like doing that one on the road. Whew. I was so annoyed during Game 6. Of the Philly series, I was just like, you guys really gave this one up, didn't you? Now we all have to sit around and wait for you guys to win game seven. Because I thought they'd win the series. But I was like, why did you do it? Why did you make us wait so long? And yeah, I the amount of nihilism that will be introduced to the Raptors timeline if they lose game six and then have to go win a game seven on the road after losing one. Oh my God. Yeah. The nice be... thing is they've shown now they can win in Milwaukee. So Yeah, but... 
oh, geez, that would be unbelievable amounts of anxiety and nihilism, which is which is where Raptors Twitter is at its best. I had a piece Look, that came out like last week talking about the Jungian shadow and relating to that. So, yeah, I feel like most writers thrive a little more in those situations than the happy times. Like there are like they're the Sean Woodley types who like their stuff pops a little more when it's optimistic and, um, you know, happy and stuff like that. And then there are people like Eric Green who like advertise that they are best in sad season. I feel like more writers skew towards Eric's side where like I have fun writing fun, emotional stuff like as good things happen. But I feel like the quality of the writing is maybe a little higher and maybe a little more genuine to my personality if it's sadder and anxious. I think for me, I think for me, it's the the brighter stuff. I, I like the analysis part of it, but for the same reason that Katie thought I was a teenager, is there's a lot of youth in my writing or energy. I'm not sure how she put it, but I think I'm better when things are good, to be honest. Yeah, that's and that's fine. There's there's a place for people like that. They there is room for that, and sometimes honestly, people need that because like even the the thing I wrote before game five was like kind of like that it was like yeah they've been here before but like you can feel way better about this and way more confident and just kind of let yourself go and enjoy it um so yeah i'm not not with you on those things i just think i'm not as good at those things as i am at the other things maybe well you know it's uh that's life there's there's we all, room we all for have strengths and weaknesses yeah there's a collinearity a, a word I learned from Blake Murphy a week ago. And <laughs> I feel like that's a great place to end the podcast. Uh, Blake, go. thanks so sure, yeah, thanks so much for coming on, man. Uh, I'm glad I have find you. If I haven't taught you anything else, I've taught you how to super awkwardly end a podcast. I, you know, usually I'm really good at it. But with you, I just feel like very laid back. I'm like, yeah, we're talking about Carly Rae Jepsen. And uh, Obi Trice, we'll just we'll cut it off when it comes to that time. Yeah, that works for me. I gotta go anyway, so let's. Uh, yeah. However, we ham fist our way there. Let's. <laughs> let's get out of here. Yeah. Um, what is it? E Blake Murphy. That's your Twitter. I'm sure. No, you... no, no, my Twitter is Blake Murphy. OBC. Oh, oh, right. E Blake right. Murphy, Murphy is my Murphy. Instagram and my email. Well, they both need love. Everyone, get at Blake's email. Please, yeah, don't um, email me. <laughs> Blake Murphy ODC writes for The Athletic, and uh, I'm very excited to read all of his stuff going forward, especially if the Raptors are in the NBA Finals. For me, you don't need to follow me because I'm trash. However, comma, you can follow Raptors Republic on Twitter or Instagram or go to raptorsrepublic.com and have a blessed day and goodbye. Sam, I'm proud Thank of you, man. You so you've, had a, you've had a really good year. Thanks, man. That's That's super nice to hear. You can keep that on the end of the podcast if you want. I, that's what I was trying to do there. But I know you end it the same way every time, so I'm jumping over your ending. You can <laughs> okay. edit it back in somewhere else. I'll, I'll put it at the very start, <laughs> and it'll work. Or, or right just there. like, you know you know what would actually be a funny bit is if you cut it and then just dropped it in randomly several places. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be good. Repeatedly, intermittently throughout the podcast. Sam, you're having a really good year. Thanks, man. Yeah. Okay, I'll let you go. All right, buddy. Enjoy the rest of your day, man. Yeah, man. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically, dollar for dollar. 
with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Metrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.